Philippians chapter 4, we are going to talk this morning specifically, uh, just as Larry had mentioned, about a subject that I think is a very challenging subject. And you may think, uh, well, they've all been challenging at this particular point. Uh, I don't know about you, but we are coming closer and closer a couple weeks now, and we'll be finished with our series of the book of Philippians. But it has been no doubt uh, for me a, uh, a large challenge that God has continued to work each and every week, week after week, just to say, Josh, where are you at? What are you doing to walk worthy? Are you examining the way that you think? Are you examining the way that you, the things that you practice that come out of your heart? And here's what I have found over the number of months. I have a lot of work to do. And if you're at all like me, you're thinking, this is a bit overwhelming. It is. And so what we begin to start doing is we say, you know what, I'm going to start working on one of those things at a time as God brings those things up in your life, and you can target those various areas. And no doubt, if, uh, if I haven't stepped on your toes at all through the course of this study, I am about to do it today. Because I do not know a single individual who is completely content, including myself. And as, you, and as I was studying this particular text, is over and over again, the Lord just pounding into my own head, just, Josh, where does your satisfaction come from? Where does your sufficiency come from? Where does full and utter joy come from? It comes from Christ. As we think about this, it, it often becomes one of those elements in our own lives where we have to really work hard at saying, what, what are those areas where I'm really not a very content person? You know, even as I ask that question, maybe one of those particular areas come up to your mind almost immediately. I would really encourage you, write the things down that God is bringing to your attention so that you don't just leave it here in the auditorium on a Sunday morning on this particular date in August. That this becomes a date where you say, you know what, this is where the Lord showed me through his word exactly what he wanted me to do concerning the areas of contentment, and I did something about it. That is the goal of studying scripture. Well, you can only imagine living in a Western culture such as ours, uh, we have quite a bit of stuff. Have you noticed that as of recent? Well, if you pick up all of your belongings and move to a different location, you begin, you begin to think about all the stuff that you have accumulated, most of which, by the way, is still sitting in my garage. So I go out there trying to figure out how to navigate around all this stuff uh, just to get, out to get out of the garage, and you realize there's a lot of stuff that you can live without. Now, I don't plan on throwing it away or having a yard sale, so don't come to my house afterward thinking, hey, he's got all this good stuff. But the reality is, is we often have far more than what we actually need, and we struggle within the Christian walk to really come, come to a contemplation that all I have and all I need is actually Christ. We tend to live with some kind of reality that we say, I love Jesus Christ, he is all I need, we sing it on Sunday, and then all of a sudden a commercial comes up and you're like, I love Jesus, but I need that. And if you haven't noticed, the propensity of your own fleshly heart is to be able to look at the things that you don't have and begin to long for them as if they would be some level of utter satisfying moment in your life where you say, ah, now I'm content. 
Here's one of the challenges with contentment, and this is where we often, uh, we may not put these two things together, uh, but I'm going to put them together for us this morning, because as you evaluate what kind of content person you may or may not be, you will likely find that you're a bit more covetous than you realize. Coveting is a very important reality, and one of the Ten Commandments, you don't look on your neighbor's wife or look on your neighbor's belongings and begin to think, man, they pull up in that nice new, brand new truck or whatever picture of a vehicle that you want to imagine, and you just kind of stare out the window like, wow, I wish that was me. You go, man, I'm so thankful for, for how God has blessed this individual. I don't need that. I've got everything I need. I'm completely content because the reality is, is the moment that you're not satisfied with Christ alone and that he is your all-sufficient reason for living, purpose for existence, glory in your life, you immediately drop your eyes from a vertical gaze and you begin scanning the horizon to try to figure out what else can be added to him in order that you might then find a joy that, you've, that feels to escape you. And contentment, Paul demonstrates to us how, how important this is because he lived out a life of contentment all throughout his ministry. We have these prized missionary uh, individuals of old. One that I, one comes to mind, uh, if you're familiar with missionary endeavors in the China Inland Mission. Hudson Taylor was an incredible figure in Christian mission history. It's remarkable, he's noted, he's noted for saying this, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time, even life itself must be secondary. All of a sudden, uh, Hudson Taylor ships off and he ends, he ends up at the shores of, uh, of China on the early parts of his ministry, he longed to be used by God in this way. And almost immediately, uh, Hudson Taylor began to be uh, making a mark on the mission world. He goes there, and all of a sudden, he starts to dress in original uh, Chinese dress, and he grows out a ponytail. No, I'm not going to try that. But all of a sudden, people are going, what is he doing? This isn't how, how are you adapting to all of this missional activity? And he was saying, I've got to win them for Christ. He wanted to abandon everything that he had. Well, as many people were there preparing on the, on the shores of China in different groups, he headed off, he, and a, he and, a, and a friend headed off to the inland portion of China, which uh, quickly uh, he came down uh, with a serious illness and had to actually go back home. And it was during that time period, while he was away and his heart was longing to be back, that he was training. He was saying, I'm not content to just sit here uh, in a very comfortable place at a very comfortable time. And he would always be berating various people around him saying, you have all the knowledge that, that you could ever want for. And these people on the heart of, in, in China have nothing. And he just would not stop. He revolutionized in various ways the way missionaries of that time would think about sacrifice and contentment. He would be willing to abandon levels of comfort and ease as he traveled in various components in the heart of China. 
his new mission that he established, well, that God put on his heart while he was, while he was back uh, recovering from his illness with the China Inland Mission, which had a number of in, uh, very distinct features, and here was one of them. Each of its missionaries would have no guaranteed of salaries, nor could they appeal for funds. They would simply trust God to supply for their needs. Now, could you imagine if your daughter or your son comes to you and says, I'm going to the heart of China. These people have never been reached. And, and you say, well, who's going to support you? Well, God is. You know, I know many times parents would look at us like, you're crazy. What happened? Like, how are you going to go there? You're just going to rest in the Lord? Now, in many particular ways, we would try to logically come to an understanding, like, how would he do this? But in Hudson Taylor's mind, he was so convinced of what, what God was going to do in the life of the Chinese people and the power and impact of the gospel that he lived life with a level of abandonment. Now, I'm not saying on one side or the other, if you're a missionary, you should go without support, go without a mission agency, go and fly, off, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and figure out what you're going to eat the next day. I'm saying there's a wisdom with it, but I think what you can appreciate in Hudson Taylor's life was there's an utter abandonment of personal contentment where he didn't, he didn't make his decision to be a missionary, to do things for the Lord, to minister in certain ways, just because he himself would have to go without something. And I think it's one of the most remarkable ways that we have to begin to contemplate our lives because we often live in a way that there are things that we believe that we cannot live without. And this is where the rub comes in, in Philippians. He's talked about now these practices that will bring peace, these, I, this mindset that will bring peace that we talked about last week, this idea of how you think about what you think about, that you can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And now he transitions in this course of this section, and now he begins to start talking about the peace of God in connection with the contentment that you and I long for because of who we know. Now notice, uh, this morning as we walk through, this is uh, where we're going we're gonna to park on this particular main idea as we walk through this text, that the secret to a Christian's contentment re resides in remembering that contentment is impossible in your own strength. It is impossible for you to be a content person if you just walk away from today and say, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to go sell everything. You cannot do it. Contentment, even for the one who has little or for the one who has much, will be impossible if you don't realize that contentment isn't found from outside things. It's found from inside things and specifically the person who's inside of you, the person of Jesus Christ through the indwelling of the Spirit of God who then resides and redeems your heart. And you know what that, you know what that says? If you're here this morning and you're contemplating this whole concept of faith and repentance and sin, you are, if you are not a saved believer, a born-again believer who have repented from your sin, guess what? You can never find full contentment without first confessing and realizing that Jesus Christ will make up all the difference for you. Without a level of humility to say, you're all I need, instead of saying, that's all I need, 
You'll never, get, you'll never see what God wants you to see. And he wants you and I to experience a life that's so full of contentment. But we have to do a deliberate effort, brothers and sisters. We have to take time to remember what he's done for us and how he works in our lives because if all of a sudden we begin to live in such a way that we think it's the stuff of the world that brings a greater satisfaction than Jesus Christ, we immediately go from a horizontal praise to uh, or, or a vertical praise to a horizontal grouping of desires and wants that never seems to end. The secret to this, and I don't know about you, but I was really excited when, I, when Paul all of a sudden said, I found the secret. I don't know about you, I love secrets. When they're revealed, not when someone keeps them from you, and he reveals it to us, and he's going to move all through the scripture of this text to be able to help us understand this. Now here's where we're going this morning as we think about peace and contentment. I want to give you this morning four different steps that I think that Paul lays out for us first of all as we think about really the secret of a content life. That life that looks inward instead of outward and realizes that what they possess was not from their own doing, was not from their own efforts, was not because they're just this great person. It's not because uh, God has blessed you with an overwhelming amount of wealth, a great job. It's not because of those things. It's because of his great love for you and for me that in the midst of us being sinners, we turn to a Savior who has adopted us into his family and given us such an overwhelming love that he would say, now that I can find contentment in. And it's not stuff, it's a person. And the moment we take our eyes off that person is the moment all of a sudden the world starts to look a little bit better. Let's start out with step number one. Philippians chapter four, verse 10 uh, continues in this way. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Here's step one. Evaluate your concern for other people. Do you notice how the Philippian believers, doesn't this is somewhat overwhelming reality, is they were so attentive and thankful for the Apostle Paul's ministry. And he had come, and you, and you can remember, if you wanted to travel back to Acts 16 and rehearse the story of, uh, of the Philippian church, and here he comes to the shores because of the Macedonian vision. He, he finds the ladies by the, by the, by the side of the river, and all of a sudden there's Lydia, and all of a sudden there's suffering, and all of a sudden there's a Philippian jailer that gets saved, and there's rejoicing, and all of a sudden there's this grouping of Christians that are coming out. But the, he made such an indelible mark on these Philippian believers, and their hearts were so knit together that they just wanted to support him. In fact, Paul's letter to the Philippian church is somewhat of a commendation to how they have supported him. We're going to see that in the latter portions of this particular book. He's saying, you watched out for me. You know, this is one of the challenges when it comes to contentment is that we're so used to, in a culture like ours, we're so infatuated with looking to ourselves first and then looking to other people's perspectives later. I can remember listening to a, a Christian radio station years ago, and they were coming alongside that great important text that, that, that talked about the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And I remember listening to the, to the radio uh, particular host saying something like this, is, 
Listen, the Bible is adequate in saying you have to love you first. If you don't love you first, then you can't love other people in a way that, you, that God wants you to. But he said, love others the way you need to be loved. So if you don't love you, you won't love someone else. Have you just noticed, even just a smidgen of this, you love yourself a lot. Have you figured that out? The whole idea of the greatest commandment was not for you to look at you in the mirror and go, man, I'm good. I mean, this is a perpetual problem in the Christian life, is it not? I wake up in the mirror and I look and I think, you are bad. <laughs> the problem with you goes far deeper than what I'm staring at in the mirror. That is only the first problem. The real problem was what is going on in my heart that I had no ability in and of myself to deal with. And the reality is, is that if we become a people who are so concerned about ourself first, ourself first, well, I'll do that once I get time. I'll do that once I get a little bit more money. I've heard so many people say things like, you know what, I'll give to the church once God gives me a little bit more. You realize then you'll just never be satisfied enough and to a point where you'll ever want to give? See, giving, even in that, is an expression of God has given you everything, and you don't even need your money in, either, in, in, in order to be content. See, the body of Christ, if they're going to be a unified whole, do we not have to look out, as the Philippians did to the Apostle Paul, and say, do I care about people? I would just ask you this morning, can you, if you had to sit down and convince yourself that you love people, could you go back to your week this week and actually see where you've made uh, time for people that were in need? Now I'm saying maybe it didn't happen this last week, and maybe it happened the week before or the week before that, but would you say that it is a semi-regular uh, occurrence in your schedule in your life? Because I will tell you this, if you don't schedule it into your time, you won't schedule it into your time. That will be the problem. In fact, in, in all reality, you may come and you may hear of a need of someone and you have a concern at the moment, but do you carry that burden? Are you willing to bear the burden with other people? Whatever that burden might be. We have to look and be concerned about other people. And that's what the Philippian believers modeled and Paul was commending this reality. He says, I rejoice greatly that now at length, get this, that, that your concern for me has been revived. Now, why would he use this idea of reviving? Well, you could only imagine, Paul could only stay in a certain amount of, uh, of the Philippian area for so long before he was going to get beat up. So he had to kind of jump from town to town to avoid getting left for dead a good majority of the time. But sometimes the towns, they didn't know exactly where God was leading Paul, and the believers would want to pray for him, but it's not like they could just grab out the cell phone and text Paul. It's like, hey, how's the walk going? Like, that wasn't going to happen. A certain amount of messenger would have to go. Uh, a certain amount of time period would have to interlay between these two things. So sometimes they would live as we would often do in prayer, saying, God, I don't know where they are, I don't know what you're doing, but I know the character of these men, and I know what they've committed to, and we're gonna pray for them. 
It's very likely that at some particular point in the midst of that where they were wondering, where is Paul? But now Epaphroditus has come and given this letter and he, they know now where he was at. They, get, they had given him a gift to help encourage him and he says, I, I am now so thankful that at length you've revived your concern. Now, don't read this into it. Don't read, well, they stopped being concerned about him and all of a sudden God just laid him on their heart and so they had a revival in their heart and say, you know what? We love that good old Paul guy. You know, he almost, he almost died for us. Uh, we should send him a gift. That's not what's going on. Their heart was already in tune, but they did not know, which is why he said, uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You had no way of knowing what I was going through. But the moment that they found out and they gained a level of awareness of Paul's need, you can see the immediate reaction is saying, we got to care for him. We love him. And I hope as a Christian brother or sister, if you think about a way that's going to develop unity and embrace a joyful attitude, is that when, people, when all of a sudden you become aware of a need that you yourself could fulfill, do it. Be the kind of person who's okay to be stopped, who's okay with somebody saying, no, they'll take time for you. No, they'll sacrifice for you. Could you imagine if all over our church this is going on, and in many different ways I hear about different things like this, but there's always room for growth in awareness of how we care for one another. I hope that's a staple mark to the community, that when they meet somebody from the chapel, they say, man, those people love each other, they care for each other, they bear each other's burden, and man, are they content. They are a content kind of individual. This idea of being concerned for one another is such an important step that cannot be missed because we oftentimes get so busy and we're so busy with all kinds of things. And I'm not saying if you're here this morning that there aren't some things that are good that are keeping you busy. There are often many things that are good things that keep us busy. But when I get to a point in my life where I'm so overwhelmed with the busyness alone and I don't manage my life in a way where I can set aside time for people, there's something wrong with me. Even in ministry, I can't look at you and I can't say, hey, you know, you got a problem? Uh, don't talk to me because I'm studying. <laughs> like, I've got really a holy agenda this week and you weren't included. <laughs> Could you imagine if that was the case for Christian and brothers and sisters in Christ? That somehow part of our holy agenda didn't include one anothering. Unity and rejoicing. These people figured that out. And Paul was commending and rejoicing God uh, over their concern for him. This idea of revival is the word, it, was, it is the expression in the language to bloom again. Don't you love that when all of a sudden you miss, uh, you know, you, feel, you felt like some portion in your life, you felt like maybe no one was paying attention and all of a sudden you were hurting and you didn't realize it and you felt like you had all these needs and someone who you knew knew you and happened to hear about your needs, uh, their revival of their concern for you blossomed again. And, they, and you even said to them, how did you find out? And they said, that's not really important how I found out. What's more important to me is how you're doing and where your soul is at and how can I be an encouragement to your life. 
that idea of allowing our concern for each other to blossom all over into beautiful things like unity, joy, contentment. But contentment's hard, isn't it, when all of a sudden God, God does things to help reveal that? Now, I would say one of the challenging components about contentment is if, if, if we said, how do you know if you're not content, right? Valid question. It's going to be when he takes away something that you really, really like. He doesn't always do it that way, but you generally tend to find out, will I be content if he takes this away? And those things can be pretty important things. That one pretty important thing I've, I've mentioned to you before was, was my oldest daughter when she went through her brain tumor. I remember sitting together as a husband and wife going, he has the right to know more than us. He's wiser than us. He's far better than us. He has the right to take her to be with him prematurely than we would desire. And would we be content if he took her from us? Oh, I can remember how hard just the deliberate action of the mind was at that moment through tears to say, you can have her. And I won't love you any less. I will, I will devote myself to you no matter what it is your plan for me. Those subsequent decisions all of a sudden, by the way, occurred time and time again. Here I'm ministering in Minnesota, and all of a sudden, God says, I thought I was going to die there. My dad pastored there for 30 years, and they now had me uh, become the pastor, and I thought, well, this is great. I love them, and they love me, and I'll just die here, and we'll just expend our life here. And God says, wait a minute. <laughs> it's time for a move. <laughs> and then he moves you, and then you end up contemplating. Well, what about my family who's all there? And what about all this stuff? And what about all the familiarity? And how am I going to do this? And he gives you a peace so that you can say yes instead of say no. And then he moved me to South Carolina, and then I thought I was going to be there forever. And then all of a sudden, here I am. Now, I really hope I'm here forever. <laughs> because a longevity in ministry where we influence and impart to one another the kind of love and unity and rejoice uh, in God's doing. But guess what? It's not dependent on a person. It's not dependent on a pastor or an elder or a deacon or your wife or your children or your stuff. It is dependent on your willingness to obey his commands, to look to God first and to others second as more important than yourself. It's like he said that before, right? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Evaluate your concerns for others, brothers and sisters. I know that it's challenging. I know that sometimes during your weeks, you only have so much time. And God isn't asking you, by the way, to do this 24-7. But he is asking you to take a portion of your time and look out to the needs of other people the way Jesus did. 
uh, and we know we can't do it to that fullest extent, but we should find ways in which we can notice in our lives that there is a concern for other people. And if there isn't, I'd really have you go back and say, Lord, what is it that is occupying my life right now and all that I'm doing that I'm so busy, I'm so concerned and wrapped up with stuff in this world that I can't seem to carve out time to devote and find people who I can care for. If you're thinking, man, I want to care for somebody, I'll tell you what, you find me after the service and I'll find somebody for you to care for. Because there's tons of people who need, who need someone just to care for them, to love them, to appreciate what God is doing and hear their story and walk through them and give them prayer. You, would only be, you could be so astounded as to, as to how important that is in the life of the body. So step number one, evaluate your concern for others. Let's move on to step number two. Philippians 4.11, he continues and he says this, not that I am speaking of being in need. Here's our step number two. Assess what you think you need. Whew, this is a tough one. When you think about what you think you need, we, I, I, I can always think about this every time I took my young children to the store because you'd walk them through or somewhere close to the toy aisle when they were younger. And uh, you just get even a close proximity where they see all those colorful things sticking out. And they just wanna, they just wanna have you drive the cart through the aisle just so they can take a look. Because you know as a parent, you get too close and everything's coming. And you know you've seen that parent at, the, at, the, at that aisle who's trying to check out and their, and their child is grabbing the candy, the, the gum, the, I want, I want, I want, I want. It's like, and then you hear this really calm parent say something like, you know you don't need that. And you know in that child's mind at that moment, like, I don't know what you're talking about. This has been a need the whole week. See, determining what we need versus what we, and, and what we want is somewhat of a challenging component. In fact, there's all of these sense of needs that we have in a sense. What are the real needs that we live with? Well, one, there are certainly some biological needs that we, that we face, is there not? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, when his disciples were filled with a level of anxiety, and he says to them, I know what you need. If you have food and clothing, be content. And he says, be, be a person filled with faith. There are needs to sustain life physically speaking. But do you realize that our world has jumped on this and, and perhaps uh, it could be more notable in one area than others in the psychological needs in which our world often portrays that people must live by or if they don't have these needs met, then somehow they will be certainly a deficient person. This happened way back in the 20th century as the psychological movement was coming out. And combined with a, a, a medical practice of biological needs, food and all these things to sustain immediate life, one particular individual in the psychological world by the name of Abraham Maslow put together a, a hierarchy of needs and, and he said, you know what, our psychological needs are very equivalent to our biological needs. And he says, you know what, we don't just need food, we need a level of esteem. We need a level of safety. Now, could you imagine saying that to Hudson Taylor? Could you? Like, you need this before you go and do 
China work on the heart of the inland work of China? That somehow he would have to have all these psychological components met? And in our culture, there couldn't be one larger thing at the forefront to say, I, ha I have to have my mind in order. Yes, the Bible wants that. That is exactly why Paul spent so much time talking about how we need to think about what we think about. But in a sense of these overwhelming needs that we have, do I need to be married? See, the reality is, is the fact that we use this need level kind of language in a lot of different ways. And sometimes we don't mean a whole lot by it. Like, for example, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, uh, I exercise because I like to eat. Okay? Uh, no, I want to be a good steward, and I'm trying to make that the whole focus. But the reality is, is if I was to be truthfully honest with you, I enjoy food also, so therefore I have to enjoy running. Okay? And I remember we went to the store not too long ago, okay? And, and I'm thinking, man, what are certain foods that, that I like? Well, man, chips has to be at the top of the list. And I don't know, you know, you see those various commercials, and I like Pringles. I mean, because it's kind of true. Once you pop, you can't stop. I mean, it's like, it's just a little can, right? And I, and I bought two cans. I bought two cans of the, of the kind that I like, and I, I came home, and I went over to the place where we put the chips, and I'm like digging, and the Pringles can is gone. It's like the Pringles monster came out. Like, who took my Pringles? Over something so foolish, something so earthly, at that moment I could even say like, I need those sprinkles, or I need chocolate, or I need, and you can fill in the blank. But the reality is, is I don't need it for spiritual sustenance. I just want it. And when I often identify what I want the most, I can often identify what I struggle with contentment is. And do you realize that sometimes you can have a lack of contentment of just having even small stuff like food you want? And I venture to say probably no one went hungry this week, right? Clearly. Okay, no one was, uh, you know, no one, uh, you might have gotten mad because someone took your plate of uh, uh, cake that was left over in the fridge that you wanted and thought you had your name on it but forgot to put it there but you don't need it like you need Christ. Like even, even in a structural of the mind, could you imagine if Paul said, I just need to have my mind all uh, situated, uh, I need to feel good about me because I'm just about to go get beat up again. Like, come on, you can do this, go get beat up again. Like his mind was so fixated on the gospel in Jesus Christ that all the other stuff seemed to be peripheral in comparison to the gospel ministry and other people's needs. He lived his life that way. We have to really work hard at assessing what we think we need in this particular life because we, so, we get so uh, discontent about going through our, our, our life and saying, you know, what, what is it that I want we spend so much time in an American affluent culture, and I bet there's probably not one person, you know, I would say one, there are times there are physical needs. 
We do have less. I think he actually puts, right, he puts college, college time period in your life because you don't, you don't have as much money, you don't have a job, but you're preparing for your thing to help you learn contentment, right, because you have no money. <laughs> and you keep spending more money than you're bringing in. Hey, welcome to the contentment world. It's only going to get better from there, right? And you're going to learn that you don't need a lot of things. You need Christ. And when we, when we step out with that level of understanding, he's saying, there's, Paul is saying, not that I'm speaking of, of, of not, that I don't have needs. I mean, think about the context from which Paul's saying this. He's in a prison talking to the Philippian believers about being content. I mean, could you imagine if he was like, you know, living in the palace and then writing back and talking about contentment? Like, you guys will make it. Man, did you hear about the pig they just roasted? I mean, I mean, did you hear about the steak I just ate? I mean, it wouldn't work. Here Paul is saying, I'm in a prison cell, and there's all kinds of ways that my mind could go, but my mind is actually going towards the things of God and the people of God. No matter how hard it was, he assessed his needs based upon a gospel-centered worldview which allowed him to say, what's the most important thing? What do I really need? I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I don't have the gospel, I lose purpose, meaning, and value for all that, is, all that I'm sacrificing for. And what is the other thing? I want to be able to live and to love people, God's people that he has redeemed. And I, I think what a tremendous example that he was to write a letter such as this in a prison cell where he's modeling the very element of contentment while he's chained to a prison guard for hours on end. And then he's saying, like, you wouldn't have anybody in the Philippian church rise up after they read this letter and go, who's he to tell us about contentment? That I'm sure you wouldn't have. They're saying, here's a guy in a prison who has learned to have a tunnel vision to the gospel and to the concerns of other people and he says, I know that there are things that I would want. He said, but instead of just being a person who's always assessing what I want, what I want, I'm going to be a person who's content. And the challenging component when it comes to needs, by the way, is that we often have experience of different things. You would have less of a need. For example, when I went to, a, uh, to Africa on a mission trip, and if I were to talk to them about something that I really want that I might classify as a need, and I said, man, I could use a, I could use a, a, you know, a Snickers candy bar right now. And, and to them, they would say, like, what's that? There's no need for them because they have not experienced certain things that they know that they would think to even need. And that's one of the most remarkable things about so many other countries, by the way, is you go there, when I traveled in Africa, and here they're living in these, these metal huts that we would call a shack, and they're all over the place, and they come out to hear the gospel with a big smile on their face, and, and you think, man, if, if, if I was living like that, could I, would I come out with a smile on? And yet, over and over again, I was, I was put to shame at the level of contentment that the Christians have around the world that sometimes we become, that I became unaware of personally because of the things that I had come to enjoy. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy things, is it? It's not wrong to be content that God has blessed, and he has blessed us 
with the level of, of, of things in your life, whatever that is. But all of a sudden, if you look to things more than you look to Christ, all of a sudden those things start to rise, rise up in their value. And if it's not the gospel and it's not God's people, then all of a sudden I begin to want more. I begin to want to climb the ladder. I got to work a little longer. It wouldn't be the first time that I've heard a husband say, I got to be a provider. Therefore, I've got this opportunity and they'll work longer days and longer hours and more opportunities just to say that they can provide at the level that they want to provide with. And I think it forces us to ask ourselves, how much do I think I need in order for my life to be content? Do I, is it a dollar figure? I only do this? Or is it a certain amount of things? I, I need to work until I can appreciate and have those things that I wouldn't have. And many people live their lives of their children saying, I never had these things and I want to give them everything that I never got to have. Give them the gospel. Give them a contented spirit and a father and a mother who love Jesus Christ and are concerned for the, for the well-being of other people and show them what godly Christ-like and contentment means and they won't even care what you bought them years from now after those toys had been long gone. Show them a contented spirit in the Lord as you assess how you how you determine what you think you need. And yes, young people, that means your parents are probably going to say no to a certain new phone, iPhone, pair of clothes, you name it. In order for you to learn certain things, you have to be able to learn to live with what you have. We can't become a greedy group of people always wanting more and more and more. And that could be for any of us if we allow our hearts to be fixated on what we think we need over against what God says we have already. If you're a Christian and you have, you have repented of your sin, you have, you, have com you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, guess what the Spirit of God just, he, he has done for you. He has sealed you until the day of redemption. He has adopted you into a family that you didn't belong to and now he has welcomed you in as, as one of his own sons and daughters. He has, he has now looks upon you with, with, with the righteousness of Christ and says, you're pure and holy in my eyes and you're going to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, you've got, we've got all that. What more do we want? All the other stuff is just all the blessings. He can take one blessing or another away and we have to respond the way Job did, even some of the most priceless and prized possessions, which are people that we love. And Job would say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian, could you do that? He wants you to be content in him so badly. And in his plan, he sent his own son to be able so that you could see it most clearly as he hung on that cross and he sacrificed himself of his overwhelming concern for the sins of the world and where he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And there he hung so that his blood could be shed and he, could, he would do the kindest act that anyone could have ever done for you here ever. And he would take in your sins upon himself so that you could be saved. 
You know, maybe you're here this morning and you just, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And you've been longing to be content and you've tried all these different ways and tried all these different things. Have you tried repenting of your sin, turning to Christ for ultimate contentment, finding the joy that you could only ever be found in him alone? Oh, I, I challenge you. That is where you will find it. It's the only place you can find it. And it only keeps getting better. The more we live for him and love him, the more he will continue to help us grow. Assess what you think you need. Step number three, commit to learn to be content. You know, this is a commitment, isn't it? You notice that Paul says, uh, he says, uh, not that I'm speaking in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he used that idea of learn twice in this particular passage. What is that? That is an experiential wisdom that comes from living life under God's sovereign providential rule. The Greeks often understood this, that one of the most prized virtues was a level of contentment. And the word contentment, if you had to, to say what is the etymology, it really it comes with this bearing, self-sufficient. And in the Greek world of intellectualism, to be able to say, I'm not influenced by all of the earthly appetites, but I am only, I am only living for a rationalistic, intellectual understanding, and when I have that, and I'm not influenced by my appetites, then I'll have a level of self-sufficiency. Oh, that was prized in the Greek world. Paul takes that Greek idea, and he turns it on its head and says, no, 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 not self-sufficiency, Christ's sufficiency. He said, I want to be content. He said, I have learned it. How? Now, this is the hard part. <laughs> he wants you to learn it whether or not you want to learn it or not. He's not taking volunteers like, how many this morning would like to learn contentment this week? And then you can come back and give a testimony so that we all know what to agree to next time. He is not taking volunteers. His providential sovereign control says, I know what each individual needs so that what would be fleshed out is a contentment in Christ. And it's different for one and different for another. And I know some situations are more difficult than others. But he wants us to commit to learn through experience, which means it's not if they come, circumstances that I'm going to learn, need to learn contentment. It's when circumstances come, I must already choose that I'm going to be content in them, no matter what he brings. No matter if he moves you, no matter if he doesn't give you, you don't have the salary you want to have, no matter if you're working harder than everyone else, uh, no, matter, uh, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter. You can choose to learn contentment and so many, in so many times in our lives, I think we just, we, we're, we're saying, I want, I want, I want. Commit to learn this kind of contentment, because that's what he's saying. It's not a self-sufficiency. He is flipping it now and saying, you know what? It's not what you learned from the Greeks. It's not what the Romans have endorsed. It is a Christ-sufficiency, and you can learn to be actively committed to being content, which means you've got to go out today and the rest of this week as you assess what you think you need, you've got, to, you've got to be willing to say, whatever God puts in my pathway this week or whether he takes something away from me, I'm going to find my joy in Christ and I'm going to be united with him and I'm going to be united with other people no matter where that path takes me. 
That's a huge commitment that you, will, you and I make uh, before the living God. So you've got to learn to be, to be content, but that will be definitely a choice. And then he moves on to say this. He's, I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Now he's wrapping up all of these terms and we can just lump it in to say whether he's got nothing or he's got more than nothing. <laughs> and think about Paul's life. There were times, I mean, he, he was so adamant about not being a burden and have people being content that he would work as a tent maker just to make sure that he wasn't putting a strain on anybody. But in whatever circumstances, whether he was running for his life, he was barely eating a meal, whether he, was, whether he was shipwrecked on the sea and floating on a piece of driftwood, it did not matter to him because he said, I have learned in all these things. Now here's what happens. You gotta look back at your life and say, what has happened that has helped shape my view of contentment? Because Paul could look back and say, I've learned it. How? Through past events. You know, as you evaluate those things, you might be able to look back and say, you know what, that's where I was less content than I was before, and it, produ it produced this. I wanted this. It shaped my mindset here, and that's what got me in trouble. I'm not going to do that again because I evaluated how I handled things, and you learn through sometimes even mistakes to be a more content per person so that Christ is truly all you need. And he wraps up all of these ideas, whether it's abundance, whether that's food or otherwise, or, or sustenance, or just resources, uh, whether it's plenty or hunger, abundance, need. I'm going to do this because I want to I be satisfied with Christ. And then he moves to step number four, which is the most critical in this, the revealing of the secret. It's to depend on the strength of the Spirit. And then we get to this verse, and you, you find many times, okay, this is one of those Philippian quotable, notable verses. People have it on a shirt. Teams have it all the time. You know, Christian teams, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just to let you know, that's not exactly what they were going for. He was going for something bigger than a win. Okay, he was going for something bigger than just the enjoyment of a certain personal earthly circumstance. Now, if you have that on your wall, I'm not saying uh, take it down. If you have it on a shirt, I'm not telling you don't wear it anymore. What I'm saying to you is appreciate what that now says. Because what he's saying to you is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's what, here's what he's saying. Here's the secret of contentment. It's not outside you, it's inside you. <laughs> It's not in your stuff, it's in a savior. It's not in any of those, it's in how you are, how Christ is sufficient and how we look to him and we enjoy him all the rest of our days. He says, I can do all things. What's this uh, very specific near antecedent to this? All the list of things that he just mentioned. I can do, I, I can live in a way whether I'm poor or whether I have much, I can do it all. What is it? What, what, is, what is it that I need the strength of Christ for? It's contentment. That I view Christ as the all-sufficient Savior of the world and that the Spirit of God who now resides within me continues to strengthen my life each and every day. Certainly the Old Testament did this so many different occasions. For example, 
uh, we can think of particular verses like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, as the, as the people of Israel were in exile. Do you remember these words? He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall and be exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk, and they shall not be faint. That is the kind of spirit-generated, Christ-sufficient, God-altering kind of lifestyle that a person who is indelibly marked by a content spirit resides, has their soul anchored to. 1 Timothy 6 says this statement. It's quite remarkable. Paul again, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Let me leave you with a couple of questions as we close. Maybe you need to work on some level of your own contentment. What if, what if you're sitting out here and you're thinking, you know what, man, I just want to be married. I want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I want somebody to care for me. It's all right to want that. God says relationships are a good thing. But what if he doesn't allow that at the time period that you want it to be allowed in? Will you look at it? Can you still be content even if, even if that's your status for a time? Can you be a single, not living as if you're missing out on something? Like all these married people are living the life you wish you could live or not. That's not to say anything about my marriage. There's not some special thing you're missing out on. You've got Christ. You've got all you need. Will you anchor your soul to him and wait upon the Lord for the right person while you continue to grow in your sufficiency of Christ and your love for the word so that you're ready to evaluate what true godliness is? What if, what if all of a sudden you look in the mirror every single morning and you look at that person and you say to them, man, I wish you were like 30 pounds lighter. You know, I've watched people be destroyed every single week they decide to get on a scale. And when that number doesn't say what, it, what, it, what they want it to say, they, they step off and they become dejected, depressed, discouraged for the rest of their life. And they've been doing it for years. Because they're, because they're more fixated on something on their external appearance than they are about their internal assessment of what's going on before the Lord. Be content. We live in a culture that's very challenging for our ladies is over and over again put out before so many people. There's particular caricature of what, what a woman is supposed to look like. And, if, and, and often the idea and the oppression of the, the, the concept that if you don't look like this and if, you don't, if, if this isn't what someone else sees, well, then you're going to be destined for singleness for the rest of your life. That's not true. Can you be content with the genetics that God has given to you that doesn't mean not be a good steward, but can you be content, even if it isn't happening as fast as you want, so that you don't become get dejected on something as simple as stepping on a scale? Can you be content, even if God all of a sudden says to you, newly married couple, and he says to you, you can't have children, 
and you experience a level of infertility where all of a sudden you just long to, to have children in your home and, and laugh and hear their little voices and little feet uh, and, and, and you come here and you see another mom and, and a family and they have children and someone else all of a sudden uh, shares that they're pregnant. Can you be content even if God says no in those areas? Are there other things that you could, perhaps God wants you to have an impact in? Can you be content even if all of a sudden you have a miscarriage and the overwhelming sorrow that comes with carrying that small little child that you long to see and to know and all of a sudden for reasons beyond what we could know but only God knows he decided to take that little precious child to be with him immediately. Can you be content knowing that you will see them again? It's not over. You're still a mom of a child who is now in heaven. Can you be content even if all of a sudden you have a child who's not done everything and gone a different place than you thought they would go and they seem to be not giving much attention to the Christian faith that you have brought them up in? And Can you be content knowing that God loves them enough and will continue to to reel them in and show them who he is far better than you could ever imagine. Can it be enough if you wake up in pain? I don't know, as you get older, it seems like pain is just kind of a normal thing, doesn't it? Uh, can you live content knowing that you're going to have some ailments and some struggles in this life, even physically, where you can say, but I have Christ. I'm not going to let even just little amounts of physical pain determine from being content in Christ. Why? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. More, and, the, and the quicker that we can learn that in a very affluent culture, we can be a church that focuses on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the concerns of other people, and we can have unity. And guess what we'll do with that? We'll rejoice. Rejoice over all that he has given to us because he is truly all we need. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you Lord, there's so many ways when we think about what we often say to ourselves about what we need, it's often referring to what we want. We want, as Christians, to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to have the heart and the mindset of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, there's no doubt, it's, this section of scripture has just challenged my own soul and, and the, the need to be a more content person knowing that Jesus Christ is this all-sufficient, all-encompassing, filled with kindness. And he's left nothing out so that, I, so, that, so that I would be able to enjoy him from the moment of my salvation till the end of my days, Lord. Help me not to live and help us as a, as a group of Christians not to live always wanting something else that's here on earth, but desiring more than anything, the relationship with Jesus Christ and all the blessings that you give to us as a result of that relationship. Lord, help us as we learn to be content. In your name we pray, amen.